Welcome to Watchmen on the Wall, a daily outreach of Southwest Radio Ministries and SWRC.com. Today, Pastor Larry will answer a question about something that may be harming your kids and grandkids. But first, James Collins and Rob Linstead continue their look into the power of the cross. 2,000 years ago, the cross meant death. During the time of Jesus, the cross was an instrument of execution that resulted in death by the most torturous and painful of ways. In crucifixion, a person was either tied or nailed to a wooden cross and left to hang until dead. Death would be slow and excruciatingly painful. In fact, the word excruciating literally means out of the cross. However, because of Jesus Christ and his death on the cross, the meaning of the cross today is completely different. Joining me again on the Watchman on the Wall to discuss the importance of the cross is Dr. Robert Linstead. Dr. Linstead is the executive director of Sunrise Christian Academy in Wichita, Kansas. He is a well-known Bible scholar, prophecy expert, and author, and today we're going to continue to talk about his book, The Power of the Cross. Dr. Linstead, welcome back. Thanks for joining me again today. My pleasure, James, to be with you guys. Dr. Lindsay, we spoke last time about the seven sayings from the cross and their significance. The fourth saying of the Lord Jesus Christ from the cross is, My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? Dr. Lindsay, wasn't that one of the most important moments in all of history? It sure was. To be honest, we could probably spend the whole program just on this one, but think about the fact that when this is documented in the scriptures, it says the sixth hour. Now, mm-hmm. remember, the Jewish day starts at 6 a.m., and so that would mean noon. Right. And so it says there's darkness for the next three hours. And what's incredible, the brightest time of the day became darkest night. Mm-hmm. I think it was God calling attention to the fact that there was a sin bearer. And I've had people say, well, you know, the planets lined up a certain way, or it was an eclipse. No, 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 nothing lined up other than the scripture. It wasn't an eclipse because an eclipse is not total dark. But I like what it says in Matthew and then in Luke, it says again, there was darkness over all the earth. James, I think that darkness is so incredible. Here's why I say that. I don't think there was a darkness like that from Genesis chapter one, when God moved in the darkness and divided the day and the night. I don't know if you've ever been in total darkness. I've been in a cave and, and the lights go out and you don't have a flashlight and you feel ridiculous because it's so dark it's almost frightening. I think this darkness was that kind of darkness. Yes. The brightest time, now it's the darkest moment. Why? Because you see, God, a holy God, was dealing with my sin. That's how horrible my sin was. He's a God of glory. He's a God of light. And in that total darkness, that's when... He would say, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Jesus only referred to his father one time as God. And that one time is here on the cross at this saying. And I think it's because this inseparable unity that God the Father and God the Son had from the beginning of ever, from eternity past, was broken for the first time because my sin was that horrible to a holy God. And so the darkness total darkness, incredible darkness. He dealt with my sin 
So you take darkness before we have the creation story in Genesis 1. There's this horrible darkness. God moves. God creates. God makes it light and life. You come to the cross, a scary darkness. You know what? This darkness is so incredible that when the veil rent, when the rocks split, when people saw and felt this darkness, they said, this was a righteous man. And then, James, I can have a go forward a little bit because you see there's another time that the scripture records there's going to be a horrible darkness. Mm-hmm. The horrible darkness is really going to be when Christ comes back at the end of the tribulation, it will call the revelation of Jesus Christ. Matthew, again, chapter 25, it talks about the fact that at the end of the tribulation, when Christ comes back, he comes back with power and might and glory. And how it describes it is just amazing because it says this, Matthew 24 says this, the sun shall be darkened, the moon shall not give its light, the stars shall fall from heaven, and the powers of heaven shall be shaken, and then shall appear the sign of the Son of Man. And it comes back with clouds, power, and great glory. So it's like God said, okay, the last time you saw him was on the cross, there was darkness and death. And the next time the world's going to see him, he's going to come back. And that darkness, can you imagine him coming in that total dark environment? Hmm. And he comes and he's a bright light of the glory of God. He comes and says, oh, the brightness of his coming, he actually destroys the Antichrist. And so to me, this saying of Christ right in the middle of these seven sayings is so important because this is the very moment when he is dealing with my sin. And there on the cross, he would make it possible for me to have eternal life through his death. Praise God. The fifth saying from the cross is found in John 19, verse 28. There the Lord Jesus Christ said, I thirst. And you said about that last time, this is the very one who can send a flood or cause a drought, the one who made every brook and river, yet he cries, I thirst. And that was very profound. Would you elaborate a little more on that verse? What is interesting to me is that in Psalm 69, verse 21, the Bible predicted that he would come and he would satisfy this, he would fulfill it in a wonderful way. But the thing that I like is he would go to those like the woman at the well, we mentioned her before, and there he would satisfy her. He would promise her living water, not just water, but living water. In John 7, what he does is so incredible because he stood and he cried, said, if any man thirst, let him come unto me and drink. He that believeth on me, as the scripture has said, out of his belly shall flow rivers of living water. You know, that was the last day. It was the great day of the feast that the Jews celebrated every year. And Christ was there. What he said, he openly proclaimed that he was the Messiah. Mm-hmm. He said, I'm the one that can give you bread in the wilderness. I'm the one who gives you water to drink in the wilderness. Now I'm here. I'm going to give you water to drink again. If you thirst, come to me. Isaiah 55, it talked about, you know, oh, everyone that thirsts. You know what I see today, James? I see thousands of people thirsting yes. because they got all the water of the world, the pleasure of the world, the luxuries of the world, the money of the world, all those things they can't satisfy. Here's a woman in John 4 came to Jesus, and she must have been a woman of pleasure because she, she had a riotous life, but none of it satisfied. Right. And that's what I'm seeing as I look around. I see people who are successful by their education, they're successful by their business, they're successful by their houses and their cars and boats, 
you know what? That's okay. God's not jealous of those things. God created the material that made those things. But have you ever seen the fact that there's a spiritual thirst that every person has? And this woman at the well, she admitted it. I think she admitted it because no one was around to hear that with all she'd done, she was still thirsty. Mm-hmm. And at the university, I would meet people, and they were so successful. They were so bright. They did incredible research projects. Wow. I meet athletes, and they're so gifted. They can jump, and they can dunk, and they can dribble, and they can, they can run fast, and all these things. But the trouble is, when the day is over, do they have an urge for something that's greater than that? And the answer is yes. And what it is, they need spiritual water, water that can satisfy for eternity. The world is built on substitutions. <laughs> See, the devil, he wants to give you some little perks along the way. He wants to give you some, some little drinks of water, of pleasure. Nothing wrong with drinking water. But if you don't have the spiritual living water, then all you have is something for this life and not for eternity. If you're just tuning in, my guest on today's Watchman on the Wall is Dr. Rob Linstead. Beacon Street Press has released his book, The Power of the Cross, and it is incredible. Great book. Uh, clear presentation of the gospel. You should get a copy and share with friends. Maybe you have a lost loved one or family member. This book would be a great witnessing tool. You can get a copy now by calling 1-800-652-1144 or online at swrc.com. Dr. Linstead, the sixth saying of Christ from the cross is, it is finished. Tell us about that statement. This is one of my favorite ones, because in the original language, the phrase, it is finished, it's just one word. One word. Mm-hmm. It's almost the idea that an athlete would have when he crosses the finish line. When he crosses that line, he owes victory. I think many victims on the cross probably said things. Most of the time, they were cursing. Who could imagine a person on the cross saying, I win? But Jesus did. Why? Because it was a victory. It was a complete victory. See, he didn't say, I'm finished. If he would have said, I'm finished, people would have understood. He's talking about physical sufferings. He's talking about his physical life. But what he talked about, he said, it is finished. What, what, what was finished? What was finished was the work that he came to do. And the work that he came to do was to save me. I'm saved today not because I do something good, not because I've done something good, not because someday I might do something good. I'm saved because Jesus on the cross did something not just good, but complete. He finished it. It's victory. It's total victory. I'm not trying to earn part of my salvation. Jesus paid it all. It's finished. It would be like going to a master picture that a well-known artist did. I say, you know, I think I'll just add a a little tree here in the background of this picture. (laughs) And you'd say, no, don't don't do that. Don't do that, no. Yeah, you'd say, you're going to ruin it. See, I can't add to what Jesus has done. He said, it is finished. There, his sufferings were done. The judgment for sin was done. There's no more sacrifices of animal needed. Everything for our salvation was completed there. And so I can be righteous in Christ when I accept, when I go to God the Father and say, God, I know I'm a sinner. I know I deserve hell. But I also admit that Jesus died for me, and he didn't have to die. He had no sin, but he died for my sins. He became my substitute. And there I say, I accept the finished work of Jesus Christ as the total victory for my sin. Hmm. That's why I love that saying. It's finished. 
The seventh and final saying from the cross is when Jesus said, Father, into thy hands I commend my spirit. First of all, it's interesting that there would be seven sayings, because I think the fact that seven is such a number of completion, Right. the thing that I love about it is that he gave up the ghost. No one took it from him. He gave it up. And when he was down the centurion, he makes that observation, truly this was a, a righteous man. But to me, what I like is it showed that that all the time he was working in complete cooperation with God the Father. Everything he did before the cross, everything he did as he spoke to people, he'd say, I and the Father are one. The great priestly prayer in John 17, he shows the unity between him and God the Father. And so now on the cross, when all this is done, you know what it says? It says this, I commit myself to God. He finished the work. He committed himself to God, and he met with God's approval, and here's why I know that. You wouldn't commit to God something that wasn't godly. And Christ knew that on the cross, when he presented himself in the finished work of the cross, he completed the work, then he presented it to the Father, and he knew that the Father would approve of it, and the proof of his resurrection. If God did not approve of the death of Christ, then God would have never raised him from the dead. God had a part in the resurrection. Jesus had a part in the resurrection. And the Spirit of God had a part in the resurrection. The whole Trinity agreed in unison that this work done on the cross by Jesus was perfect, complete, and enough to save a sinner like me. When the Lord Jesus Christ died, he was taken from the cross and buried in a tomb belonging to Joseph of Arimathea. And you write in the book, The Power of the Cross, he was beaten, he was disfigured, he was nailed to a cross, he was gored with a spear, and he was dead. It looked like it was the end of Christianity. Thank God it was only the beginning. Dr. Lynn said, tell us about the significance of the resurrection. Well, I think without the resurrection, we don't have salvation. Mm -hmm. Because resurrection was the great stamp of approval. We find it in, I'm going to say in several ways. One is remember Jesus, when he walked with his disciples, he said to them, in so many days I'm going to be in Jerusalem, and the Son of Man is going to be given to the priest and to the religious people, and they're going to mock him and scourge him and kill him, and he will, like again, I look at the story that he taught concerning Jonah, and he said, just as Jonah was in the belly of the whale, the Son of Man will come forth alive again. And then we go to First Corinthians, and we see that, again, he states, here's the definition of the gospel, that he died according to the Scripture, he was buried according to the Scripture, and he rose again according to the Scripture. Everything, every minute detail, was in the aspect of fulfilling every detail of God's plan for my salvation. And so he introduces himself in Revelation chapter 1 to John. He says, I am the resurrection and the life. I'm the one that was dead, and now I'm alive. And he has the power of life and death. You see, the devil doesn't have that power. Jesus has the power of resurrection. Jesus has the power of life. This is the great triumph over the devil, because the devil doesn't have that power. The devil and the Antichrist are going to fake it. In the middle of tribulation, they're going to try to give life to the image of the beast. They're going to fake it. They're going to fake death and try to fake resurrection. Huh. Jesus didn't fake it. The enemies of Jesus could not deny that what was done was an incredible, mighty miracle 
that only God can do. No world religion can touch your resurrection. Well, Dr. Linstead, you've been doing a tremendous job over the last couple of programs sharing the gospel. And there may be someone listening today who is not a believer in Jesus Christ. Would you tell that person how they can receive Christ? James, what a pleasure that would be. Because I think, first of all, is to acknowledge I'm not up to God's standard. The Bible says all have sinned, and, and I know that I'm a sinner. I know my thoughts. I know my deeds. I know my motives. I'm a sinner. I'm short of the standard of a holy God. And if God allowed me to go to heaven without sins forgiven and blotted out, I would ruin heaven. I would bring disease to heaven. I would bring death to heaven. I bring all the curses that we have on the earth. And so I think the first thing is acknowledge I'm a sinner. I'm short of the holy standard of God. Number two, I think is to acknowledge that Jesus Christ on the cross paid a debt that I could never pay. The only way I can be righteous is for him to be my substitute. Sometimes we don't like a substitute to come in when we're playing baseball. Maybe we don't like a substitute to come in when we're going to do something special. But let me tell you that when the sin test comes and God looks at whether I'm a sinner or not, you know what? I'm glad to have a substitute. I'm going to call in Jesus. I'm going to admit that what Jesus did on the cross is something I couldn't do for myself. My righteousness is in Christ. And I think the final thing is to say, Lord Jesus, I take you as payment for my sin. I accept the finished work on the cross as the work that satisfied a holy God and could save a sinful man. Lord Jesus, I take you as my Savior and my substitute. And pray that in Jesus' name, and I think that's when a person passes from death into life. Well, Dr. Linstead, thank you for being on the program. I've followed your ministry for years, and it was such a blessing to be able to visit with you. And I know that you have more great teachings in both book and video form, and I hope that you'll come back again on the Watchman on the Wall very soon to share with us. That'd be my pleasure. I look forward to that opportunity. May the Lord bless you and the work there at Southwest Radio Church. May we see many people come to Christ, because I think we're on the verge of Jesus coming back in the rapture of the church. Amen. What really happened at the trial of Jesus? Did the crucifixion make Jesus a victim or victor? Why is the resurrection completely unique to Christianity? Find out in Dr. Rob Lindstedt's book, The Power of the Cross. Order your copy today by calling 1-800-652-1144. That's 1-800-652-1144. Or order online, swrc.com. We have some time left to ask Pastor Larry a question. Pastor Larry, why the exodus of Christian kids and other kids from public schools? Will public school education harm my children? Parents have rightly believed that they are responsible for the education of their children. This is certainly an awesome responsibility. This does not necessarily mean that parents have to do the actual teaching for every subject. It does mean, however, that parents need to know what their kids are being taught and who is doing the teaching. And they need the freedom, the right for making right choices and for school choice. Shockingly, more and more public schools are disagreeing with this basic item of parental responsibility and authority. 
They think the public school owns our kids. One school system just south of Nashville, Tennessee, is asking parents to sign a statement that they will not ask questions about their child's education and will not look at online material from which their kids are being taught. Now, friends, this is like the clerk at the supermarket telling customers, do not count the change you get from the cashier. If anything, that's a good reason to make sure that you really count the change carefully. Many parents are outraged and are becoming involved in their children's education, which is a good thing. They are taking a strong stand and letting the local school boards know how they feel. Some school boards, with the instigation of the U.S. Department of Justice under President Biden, are labeling this as domestic terrorism. The cry is, call federal law enforcement. The parents need to be restrained. Parents, beware. The schools are stealing your kids from right under your noses. One parent recently relayed that her child's teacher said to her son, you must wear your mask at all times, even when you are at home. When the elementary child arrived home, his mother said, honey, you can take off your mask. You don't have to wear a mask when you're at home. Unbelievably, the child refused. He said his teacher told him to keep his mask on, quote, even if your mother or father tells you to take it off, close quotes. There is government overreach all around us. This is just one example of it. This administration has a messianic complex. The government is now the Messiah. We know better than you do. We know what is good for you. Obey us or else. Our government has a pride problem, a heart problem, and has never grasped the tenets of Americanism. We don't have an emperor, and we don't want one now. We all remember President Reagan's one-liner. The nine most terrifying words in the English language are, I'm from the government, I'm here to help you. Deciding how to educate their children in the nurture and admonition of the Lord should be a top concern for every parent. It is a top concern for Chinese Christians and the People's Republic of China. The following report from China Partnership reminds us that the same situation may soon develop in America if we are not careful. This summer, a father by the name of Xu Hao was arrested. Those who took him did not show any identification. After seizing him in the early hours of the morning, while he was still in bed, they forcibly searched his house. He had violated Article 28 of the Public Security Administrative Punishment Law. His specific offense homeschooling his son. Pastor Wang, which is a pseudonym for a pastor serving Chinese house churches in northern China, is familiar with this case and others like it in China. He has strong words for those who arrested this father. Quote, As law enforcement, have you ever dealt with your blind spots? Have you realized that power may bring you pride, arrogance, and a headstrong spirit? If you don't face the truth, you will only continue in stubborn self-centeredness, monopolizing the law's interpretation with your subjective speculations, creating one stupid public incident after another. These incidents will be offered to history as a laughingstock. One day they will be presented against you before the ultimate judgment seat of God and will be used against you in the heavenly courts." China Partnership tells about another Chinese Christian who quickly came to realize that he had a problem. His 13-year-old son was going through a period of intense struggle. 
Many physical, spiritual, and developmental issues were overwhelming this poor boy. In the past, the boy was a joyful and active child. As he advanced in a communist school system, however, he gradually became silent and withdrawn. The parents say this broke their hearts to see their son suffering in this manner. They realized their son was facing a hidden horror, public school education under communism. They prayed and sought God's wisdom. They realized they needed to try homeschooling. Chinese Christians face many difficulties in trying to raise their children to follow the Lord. The communist government claims that Christianity and imperialism are buddies, and one causes the other. Chinese Christians will tell you that that is a ridiculous charge. Jesus Christ and his faithful followers are not imperialists. While the West has taken advantage of China many times over, it is true that missionaries provided free education and health care for multitudes of Chinese men, women, and children. One of the Chinese pastors who is currently serving a jail term for speaking the truth was bold enough to write that if it were not for Western missionaries, Chinese women would still be hobbling around with bound feet and ugly pigtails. America is in a moral freefall. The nature of the people, our country electoral office, is a reflection of this fact. Though there are signs that America may be making a turn in the right direction, we need to feed the flame of liberty. The disgusting curricula that is being taught in many American schools will destroy tomorrow's leaders. It is time to speak out. It is time for parents to take their kids back from left-wing ideologues in the classrooms of America. These ideologues regard themselves as apostles of the New World Order. One clear advantage of homeschooling is the ability to make your own educational choices. You will also face minimal COVID-19 restrictions and reduce COVID-19 exposure. There will be greater flexibility in scheduling your school day. Teaching will be more focused. More than 50% of class time in many public schools is taken away from instructional training because teachers have to deal with disciplinary problems. In the past, many parents used school as kind of an instructional babysitter. Sending the kids to school gave busy moms some free time to do shopping and other chores. Today, however, the public school is not a good environment. Some of the things that are happening in public schools are just wrong. Children are young and impressionable. Many of them are just not able to handle the stress, confusion, and soul-destroying ideas that are surely going to affect them for life. Many parents have shared with me how their children's values no longer reflect their values. They've never seen their kids so rebellious and restless. Once children become teenagers with hormonal changes and face issues raised with the onset of puberty, they must be treated with love, but also they must receive guidance that will develop character and help them get through the storms of life. They certainly don't need to be confused by teachers who are products of today's state teachers' colleges. Graduates have been fed the noxious ideas of John Dewey and the educators who contributed to Humanist Manifestos 1 and 2.
The Power of the Cross by Dr. Rob Lindstead teaches the details of the crucifixion and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Get your copy of The Power of the Cross by calling 1-800-652-1144. That's 1-800-652-1144. Or you can order online, swrc.com. Tomorrow on Watchmen on the Wall, Pastor Larry reveals the three mysteries of Christmas. Be sure to tune in on your favorite radio station or by subscribing to our daily podcast. Watchmen on the Wall is a production of Southwest Radio Ministries and is supported by faithful listeners like you. Visit swrc.com.